0: Joining the podcast today is Dr. Robert E. Wright, an economic historian, a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, and in his own words, an anti paternalist, classical liberal political economist. Robert has taught business, economics, and policy courses at Augustana University, NYU's Stern School of Business, Temple University, and the University of Virginia. He has authored or co-authored numerous articles for important academic journals, including the American Economic Review, Business History Review, Independent Review, and Southern Economic Review. And he is also the author or editor of over two dozen major books, book series, and edited collections. He's very prolific, including the book, The Poverty of Slavery, How Unfree Labor Pollutes the Economy. He has served on the Board of Historians Against Slavery, an NGO, since, since 2012. How are you, Robert?
1: I am doing great. How are you? It is so wonderful to be on this uh, podcast. I'm not a huge uh, consumer of podcasts. In fact, I think I have been a guest on more podcasts than I have actually ever listened to, uh, with two exceptions. Uh, one is uh, Musings, and the other one is uh, this podcast.
0: Wow, well, I appreciate your time. Um, So, praising your book, James Brewer Stewart, the founder of Historians Against Slavery said, this book is a vigorous rejoinder to the oft-repeated historical claim that immense profits derived from slavery powered the development of today's all-consuming system of globalized capitalism. When arguing persuasively for the contrary view, that slavery produced impoverishment, not affluence, Robert Wright Marshall's arguments based on a truly encyclopedic familiarity with slavery systems the world over in the past as well as the present. The debate that this book should initiate is very much welcome and timely in the extreme. And it does feel very timely with things like the 1619 project and the public conversation. This is always a topic that people return to. So Uh, We'll go through the different parts of the book chapter by chapter, but first tell me why you decided to write this book and about the book in general.
1: Well, I decided to write the book because uh, I couldn't believe what I was seeing coming out of um, progressive, or I guess we would call them now woke uh, historians. This was, uh, you know, I I wrote the bulk of the book in 2015 and 2016, which was, you know, prior to the whole. you know, sixteen nineteen project, but there were scholars who were publishing books that were getting quite a bit of traction because they were Ivy League, you know, historians with uh, with fancy fancy titles and endowed chairs and whatnot, and uh, they were arguing what the pro slavery people used to argue in the United States, which is that. Um, it, America would not be rich without slavery, and what they are trying to do is to set up a case for reparations, to say, "Hey, look, we're wealthy today, but it's only because we had slavery in the past, and now it's time that, uh, you know, we we repay that debt." And it is um, completely wrong and wrong-headed, and uh, as you know, my colleague. Um, now my colleague, Phil, Phil Magnus, has really been in the weeds uh, with this, uh, showing many of the very specific problems with those books and with the 1619 Project. Uh, my book, uh, The Poverty of Slavery, is more of a, a step back, a look not just at the United States, but all systems of enslavement from the prehistoric period up to the present. And um, I don't ever find an instance where slavery leads to anything more than profits for slaveholders. It never helps overall economies, and it really can't for the reasons that I'm sure we'll get into in, in more detail uh, shortly. So that's the, the gist of the book. The whole idea is to cut off that reparations notion uh, based on... Um, some very uh, poorly thought-out, um, you know, economic story that slavery leads to uh, economic growth and development.
0: So the first chapter, uh, entitled "Yet Another Half Untold," provides a sort of introduction to the book and explains uh, your objectives. Um, you know, putting to rest this claim that slavery can ever be economically beneficial and you mentioned a number of uh, times when you heard people make claims like this how pervasive is this belief that slavery was or can be economically beneficial
1: uh, it's much too pervasive uh, once again I mean it was thoroughly trounced in the in the 19th century and only a few you know r- racist uh, historians like you be um, uh, Phillips, you know, kind of kept some of it alive for for a while, but it it pretty much petered out until the the new millennium, and then we started to get books like the the Ed Baptist uh, book, um, the Path Untold, uh, that uh, you know forms the basis for the uh, for, for for the sort of uh, tongue in cheek chapter title, <laughs> yet another half um, you know un, untold. And uh, that that helps me to get into, you know, some basic economic concepts like opportunity cost, and uh, of course, Bastiat's uh, window, you know, that which is seen and that which is unseen. So the the main um, sort of thrust of the books by um, Baptist and um, Sven Beckert and Walter Johnson, the, those uh, latter two teach at Harvard and um, Baptists at uh, at Cornell, and then a, a whole raft of of other scholars that kind of you know tried to tried to uh, follow, follow in their in their wake um, is to to concentrate on the profits that slavery uh, produced, right? So there were some rich slaveholders, and uh, so they say, well, those rich slaveholders. Um, you know, drove economic growth uh, in, in the United States, um, in Great Britain, um, because the, the British, of course, had, uh, have, had slave colonies uh, as well. And um, this leads to um, this horrible generalization that they all like to, to, this horrible label they all like to bring up, uh, capitalism, uh, which is a term that uh, I personally try to avoid. Uh, whenever possible, because uh, there's not really a, um, a single agreed upon definition uh, of it, it's used by different people in in, in different ways. Um, I prefer to uh, look at economic growth and development, both of which, of course, we can measure more or less. Um, but uh, the the notion of Baptists and Beckert and uh, Johnson and and these other folks was that uh, slavery created capitalism and capitalism creates uh, wealth. And um, it's just a a very uh, flawed uh, story. It's um, oversimplified, undefined. And what I uh, try to do in that first chapter is to, uh, to point that out, to point out the political objective, which is to make a case for reparations today um, and to uh, you know, try to explain that um, uh, making reparations, e- even if their case is correct, um, and you know we we owe something to uh, the descendants of, of slaves. Uh, it's still fraught with all kinds of difficulties because uh, almost everyone um, has been descended from at least one slaveholder and at least one slave uh, over the courses of 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 their genealogies and so um you know sorting sorting that all out uh, is is next to uh, impossible and in the end we would just be paying paying ourselves (laughs) um so uh, and of course this issue is coming up again because of what's going on in california uh right now um, there was a couple years where reparations were hardly um, mentioned because everyone was so focused on on COVID and mandates and lockdowns and whatnot. Uh, but you're right, it is coming back uh, in in force, uh, even though there's there's you know no no intellectual justification for it uh, whatsoever and a lot uh, against it.
0: So let's get into the case uh, against it. Um, but before, well, actually, before we get into that, we have to look at the framework that you set out in the book, right, about uh, the various degrees of liberty. We need to define slavery and talk about uh, this idea you present that slavery is not a simple yes or no condition, but rather there's a continuum of degrees of slavery, or essentially a score that you could apply to someone with regards to how free they are. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm an historian by training, but um, I'm very analytical uh, compared to most historians. So, you know, I like uh, to be able to, to quantify things to the extent possible. And I like to uh, be very precise and in defining terms, and that's why I, I don't use the the word capitalism except uh, ironically or in a quote you know quotation or or what have you, um, and uh, the the term slavery is also uh, you know contested, and um, I looked at the the history of different definitions of the word you know as far back as we have language all the way up to to the present, and um, just began to to sort of um, keep track of the different ways in which the, the word was was used. And I ended up with uh, 20 questions that could be posed to an individual or could be posed to uh, you know, a, a historical group. Uh, and the answers to those 20 questions uh, don't lead to a, yeah, you're a slave or no, you're not a slave. It leads to a scale a scale of of freedom. And so when you start to apply this to individuals or to uh, different historical groups, you can get a pretty good idea of who was more enslaved uh, than others. So a chattel slave in the antebellum US worked on a, um, a gang system in uh, a cotton field uh, or, or in a sugar you know sugar plantation. Uh, score zero uh, on this. Um, so that's that's pretty enslaved, right? That, that,
0: Can't be more enslaved, absolutely.
1: The CEOs and most tenured college professors, at least until recently, fall at the other end of the spectrum. They tend to score 19 or, or 20, uh, whereas um, you know, wage laborers in the 19th century tended to score around seven or eight, um, but today they score more around 15 or so. Um, the, the questions that compose the, the, the freedom scale are, are questions like, uh, do you get paid in cash or some other liquid uh, asset, you know, like stock options or what have you? Because if you don't, then your employer can control you. Like with company script in the, in the 19th and, and the 20th, the first part of the 20th century, uh, many workers would get paid in company script that was only good at the company store. And so obviously that uh, decreases their, their liberty because they can't save in a way that would allow them to move to another job, for example. Um, it, there are questions like uh, if you can um, marry on the same terms that your uh, employer can. Uh, and if you can, then, you know that's fine, but if you can't, then obviously you know your liberty is, uh, is is a little is a little bit less. So the the scale works really well um, in terms of comparing different workers at, at different times and trying to figure out why sometimes workers were so um, got so peeved peeved off. And a lot of times it was because their, their freedom score uh, was reduced by the terms of their contract. There was a type of chattel slave in the antebellum US, for example, uh, who worked on a task system rather than a gang system in the rice plantations in the Lowlands in Georgia and uh, South Carolina. And their freedom score was more like in the, in the three to four range because they, they weren't under the lash all day you know, being, being worked in this gang, they were given so many acres of um, rice paddies to tend to. And once they tended to that, they were on their own, their own time for the rest of the day. So it was still a dreadful uh, situation as the three to four score indicates, but it was, it was better than the, the, the gang worked cotton slave. Uh, when emancipation comes, the Southerners, uh, the, the former slaveholders start to have uh, their workers sign contracts that were very prohibitive. And so we didn't go from a, a status of pure enslavement to to a bunch of CEOs running around, right? To, to, to close to, to pure, pure freedom. Instead, you know, slaves maybe uh, started to score a two or for, former slaves, a two or a three because of how restrictive these labor contracts were. Well, the rice plantation slaves actually saw the contracts as more restrictive to their freedom than they had been living under in slavery. So they were not at all happy. And there was all kinds of uh, unrest in that area uh, in in lowland uh, South Carolina, immediately following the, the Civil War not because of emancipation per se, but because of emancipation followed by this regime of very strict uh, labor, labor contracts. Uh, it also helps us to make distinctions um, between uh, wage laborers that were under you know, restrictive uh, contracts and what would later be called as free laborers, people who had much more discretion in the terms of, of their work. So for example, uh, in the 19th century, there were many farm girls that ended up in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, working in textile mills. They were wage laborers. Their um, lives were highly restricted by the, the corporations that uh, employed them. So they score more like in the, you know, the seven to eight uh, range on the freedom scale uh, as opposed to, you know, 14, 15, 16, that um, most quote-unquote free laborers later on uh, would uh, would enjoy.
0: And then your third chapter is an overview of slavery from prehistoric times up to the great emancipations of the 19th century. And there's a lot to discuss there. So let's start with the deep history of slavery in ancient times. Tell me about slavery in the distant past and that evolution and then we'll move forward in time.
1: Well, uh, you know, slavery, the the big point is that slavery is uh, ubiquitous over time and space. Uh, Most societies had some type of uh, person that might not go by the name of a slave that would score very low on on the freedom scale that I just uh, described. So, uh, and and, uh, even chattel slavery uh, with outright ownership and scores of zero to one were, were quite um, common throughout uh, history and throughout the globe. Uh, determining exactly when and where though, especially in the prehistoric period is difficult because you have to interpret the physical record. And so some things like uh, prehistoric chains have been found made from iron uh, we're pretty sure that those, those folks were enslaved. There's not a lot of these that have survived, but uh, that's part of the nature of the archeological record, right? You don't know um, uh, because you find four or five of these, uh, you, there could have been you know, 40,000, 50,000, hundreds of thousands of them uh, produced back then. And especially with something like iron, Uh, because it can rust away, or it can be repurposed, right? So you're using iron to shackle slaves, uh, but, um, you know, it starts to break or rust or what have you, they would then recast that iron into some other product. So uh, that is a loss, of course, to the the archaeological uh, record. Uh, We can look at things like uh, sex um, ratios in uh, existing collections of, of bones and, and try to glean something uh, from that. Uh, there was a massacre, for example, um, on what's now called the Missouri River and what's now South Dakota uh, that happened uh, in, in pre-Columbian, pre- you know, prehistoric times. And uh, the, the bones showed um, you know, a, a wide range of men who were killed Uh, and very old females, but hardly any females of reproductive age. So how could this have been a functioning society with hardly any females of of reproductive uh, age? Um, Well, it's likely that what happened was this raid occurred and this massacre occurred because it was a slave raid and the raiders wanted reproductive age females. That's why they're not represented in... um, in the mass grave uh, of, of that massacre site because they weren't killed. They were taken and, and, uh, and, and enslaved. Um, I, th- I think that slavery probably came about as the same time as the domestication of animals because uh, many of the same technologies uh, are involved. And uh, one aspect of slavery has always been Uh, to treat the enslaved as non-human. And I think that this comes, you know, from the fact that, uh, you know, this is happening at the same time that we are domesticating or uh, enslaving, if you will, uh, you know, goats and cattle and uh, chickens and and so on and and so forth. Um, some, Some of the techniques that are used in animal husbandry are also used on slaves, like castrating young males. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of similarities be- between the two, but we don't know for sure. But we do know as soon as we start to get uh, written records, slaves are ubiquitous and they're in the written record and there's nobody saying, hey, there's this new thing here. <laughs> it, it's always in the context of, hey, this is common and everyone knows what this is. You know, Going all the way back to the Epic of, uh, of Gilgamesh, right? And of course there's slaves in the Bible, and um, you know they're they're just all over the the written the written record uh, as soon as it emerges. So we're quite confident uh, that um, slavery was ubiquitous, and and had a had a deep history even you know thousands of years ago when we when we finally first start recording uh, things and you see them in in early account accounts. Uh, slaves will will show up as assets, often right next to uh, you know the livestock and the number of um, you know the the number of acres of land and and all that sort of sort of stuff. So we're quite confident in that. And uh, by the time we start to get into you know the ancient Greek period, the ancient um, Roman period, the Roman Empire, slavery uh, slavery's very well entrenched. Uh, there's a wide variety of different forms of uh, of, of bonded or or unfree uh, labor, um, like the the helots uh, in in some parts of ancient Greece. That there's no modern analog for. Um, they're kind of like serfs or kind of like slaves. It's like this hybrid thing, um, and there's there's different uh, grades of of slaves and of uh, debt peons, and it, it's really um, a, a diverse ecosystem, indicating that it's something that had been around for a long time, was it involving different forms to meet, uh, to, to meet economic and political circumstances in, in, in different uh, countries. It's also widespread in India. It's widespread in China, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, it's huge in Africa, um, Africa, there's an internal slave trade, there's a slave trade between North Africa and Europe, between East Africa and uh, the various Indian Ocean civilizations and 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 Arabia. There was a uh, every, everyone's heard of the Silk Road. Uh, there was also a slave a slave road uh, where uh, human beings are being shipped from one area to another. Uh, Slaves are very interesting economically for a number of reasons. And one is that they become more valuable the further and further away from their source that they they go. Uh, And and they can also carry themselves there and they can also carry uh, other goods with them, right? So there's a very strong incentive to seize or buy slaves in one area and then to use them to transport themselves and goods to, to other areas for sale. And the reason why they're v- more valuable the, f- the further away from home they are is because they become easier and easier to control. They don't know how to get back home. They don't know the local uh, language or, or customs. They stand out as different. And hence, if they were to try to escape, they're more easily identified and then uh, you know, return to their to their masters, to their owners. Um, so, uh,
0: And the word "slave" itself it comes from "slav," right? Because that's the, the English
1: word "slave" comes from "slav." Yes, the the uh, the Latin term "servus" service comes, uh, you know, is uh, we we now use as servant or serf. So in English, yeah, there's this, and, and that's because, um, you know, Eastern, European, Eastern Europe was a major source of slaves. Um, Western Europe was a major source of slaves uh, as, as well, and uh, not many people um, appreciate this. I mean, uh, really sophisticated folks like, um, you know, Tom Sowell knows this uh, extremely well. Um, he's even argued that uh, more Western Europeans were enslaved than than Africans, at least in the transatlantic part of that um, uh, of, of that global slaving system. Um, you know, uh, Benjamin Franklin, for example, his last public act was to sort of mock uh, slaveholders in the U.S. by by pointing to the enslavement of Europeans by. Uh, Muslims in North Africa, and the Muslims use the same justifications for slavery that the the, the slaveholders in, in the U.S. used. Um, they're not really people. Uh, we can convert them to the one true religion. Uh, it's better for them to be slaves with us than to be out on their own in their, you know, barbarous, <laughs> barbarous land, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, uh, So, yeah, and then uh, Central and and South America, North America, um, pre-contact, there was also slavery. Uh, There's all kinds, uh, you know, traditionally, um, anthropologists and archaeologists didn't want to recognize it in the new world. Um, Part of that um, myth of the the noble savage is it sometimes uh, sometimes called, uh, but various Indian, Groups, American Indian groups um, enslaved, uh, enslaved people with, with regularity. Uh, it's clearest in the Northwest, um, but uh, even the Eastern Woodlands ones, um, Mesoamerican ones, the, the Inca, you know, they all had forms of, uh, of, of bonded labor. And again it's, it doesn't look exactly like the chattel slavery with you know people of a different race laboring out in in, in, in the fields and, and whatnot um, but uh, they are still very much on the low end of that uh, of, of that freedom scale that uh, we discussed uh, earlier so yeah slavery is uh, ubiquitous and it's it's going every which direction sometimes at the same time um, where you have Vikings who are uh, raiding the the English, the English and the Irish coasts, and then taking the slaves and selling them in, in North Africa. The North Africans are raiding throughout the Mediterranean, and sometimes they even uh, raided up the Thames, uh, in in what today is is Britain, uh, and and took slaves. And so it's it's not. A phenomenon of what Western Europeans did to Africans. It's what humans had been doing to humans over millennia.
0: Right. so it's global. It, it's been going on since time immemorial. Um, but then, uh, tell me about how that evolved into the chattel slavery um, that we're all familiar with from the colonial era. and Because it's very important, I think, as a question to understand uh, how this norm that had existed for so long changed. How did we get those great emancipations of the 19th century?
1: Uh, Well, the great emancipations have been overplayed (laughs) because we don't, especially when you start to think uh, of slavery along a, a continuum, right? Because we... We, go from, we, we don't go from slave to free, we go from chattel slave to somebody who has a little bit more freedom, but not a whole heck of a, of a lot. So I already mentioned how uh, some, some slaves who were relatively free in the, the old Dixie model um, actually felt as though they were less free under the, under the new contractual uh, model. Uh, there's all sorts of um, uh, quasi-slaveries that sprang up, uh, especially in the, the South following the Civil War. And some historians like um, you know, Doug Blackman and uh, David Oshinsky have, have recaptured uh, a lot of this uh, for us. But basically, um, you would have people using the exception in the 13th amendment in order to, 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 to reduce other, you know, to reduce people back towards slavery, back towards being a bonded or a coerced laborer. So uh, you'd pass a law that said, okay, well, if you're, uh, if you're a vagrant or you're quote unquote loitering, uh, then uh, you're subject to a fine and or imprisonment. Then sheriffs, uh, you know, p- police officers, um, constables go out and they find people uh, who don't have any obvious means of employment and they arrest them for that. And then they're brought before a magistrate and the magistrate says, you're guilty of this. You gotta pay a $5 fine. And the person says, well, we don't have $5. And the judge is like, that's okay. Uh, you can work it off. And then they're sold, or their debt technically is sold uh, to a plantation owner or to a coal mine, and uh, they effectively become slaves. Uh, And in some ways, uh, they're much worse off than the chattel slaves of before the the Civil War, because uh, the chattel slaves um, were worth hundreds. And at the end, you know, a thousand plus dollars for a prime-age male field hand, right? They were very valuable uh, assets. So slaveholders uh, did not um, generally, uh, you know, ab- ab- abuse them to death um, because they're 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 so valuable, right? They have a they have a interest in the slaves continuing to be healthy enough to to do the work uh, required on, on the plantation. Uh, so, it, you know, doctors uh, would, would be hired to, to tend to them if they said, oh, um, you know, I'm not feeling very well today. Oftentimes they were, they were given, you know, time, time off because the, the slaveholder didn't want to risk this pretty, you know, valuable um, asset. Uh, in the postbellum period under this convict leasing system that arose, the amounts that are paid for men who, who are already fully grown, right? That the the uh, the, the, uh, the employer didn't have to put a bunch of resources and years and years uh, into first um, and buy for just a few dollars. Well, they they think nothing of working them to death because why not? You can always go get another one for for five dollars. So they complain about medical, you know, too bad. Keep working. Um, they had much uh, uh, stricter, stricter punishments uh, for these men because, again, they didn't really care if they, they lived or died. They were just looking for compliant workers, um, workers who would, uh, who, who would work, uh, work hard. And if not, then they're, they're fine to put them in the ground uh, because you know, they don't have very much uh, invested uh, in them. So these modern forms of slavery that came out of the old chattel system, in some ways, are much, much harsher than uh, than than the old uh, the old system. Not to glorify the old system anyway; it's still it's still horrible. But um, just uh, looking at the the self interest of of the slaveholder, um, you know, it was vastly vastly different. What what Simon Legree does um, to Uncle Tom and Uncle Tom's cabin, you know, was 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 pretty unusual. Um, and, and it's only after Tom just shows his, you know, that he's um, going to be utterly recalcitrant that Legree Le finally finally kills him. Right? Um, he gives them a lot of slack because Tom's very very valuable uh, worker. Uh, but in in the new slaveries that arise, you know, they paid very little for the slaves, and and so uh, they're 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 happy to uh, you know to to work them to death if they're not going to. Um, you know pr- provide those rents that the that the enslavers want.
0: And of course some and that's were, of course
1: really what this is all about, right is is it's a form of it's a form of rent seeking, a form of uh, theft.
0: And of course some were worked to death under chattel slavery as well, especially in places like the Caribbean you saw all sorts of different conditions depending on what location you're looking at right But um, that's, we're, that's right. we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Can you tell me about the rise of the transatlantic? slave trade and the rise of the anti-slavery movement? Because obviously throughout history, there have been sporadic criticisms of slavery. There have been brief bans on trading slaves at different times in history, but how did we get to a point where that legal change, uh, stuck?
1: Well, I, it, it sticks, uh, I mean-
0: Well, but, but first the rise of the transatlantic slave trade. Let's, let's talk about the rise of the system before we talk about how it- uh, Yeah,
1: it, it, was, it was not a European invention mm-hmm. because um, Africa had already been decimated by these different slaving systems. The one where Muslims come down from the, from the North and um, they either seize uh, Sub-Saharan Africans outright or they purchase them, they trade for them. Uh, with um, uh, other sub-Saharan, you know, enslavers, and there's also this system on the east where uh, sub-Saharan and Afri- uh, South African slaves are, uh, or Africans are being enslaved and then shipped to uh, India and Southeast Asia and 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 China uh, and, and 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 so forth. So. Um, the Europeans don't invent that. They they just come into this system that's already there, and they start to uh, either go to places that were relatively cloistered previously, because just from the sheer distance, the transaction cost, you might say, of these other two systems, or because they start to outbid the other the other enslavers, uh, the other slave traders, and so they start to take um, you know slaves uh, slaves away to work in the uh, plantations in the Caribbean and in Brazil and in uh, North, North America, relatively small percentage of them actually end up in, in North America. Um, because uh, as we talked about previously, there did develop the system in, in North America where the, um, the slaves are valuable. They're kept healthy enough that not only do they work, they also reproduce. Which is fairly unusual in enslaved in systems. In the Caribbean systems, for example, they often work people to death the an average of like seven years, and those populations are not—they're um, not self-reproducing. They're—they're they're dependent on the slave trade. They're dependent on this new stream of of en- enslaved Africans uh, coming in. So that makes it possible once there's finally the development of. Um, anti-slavery and abolitionist ideas. Pretty much, I I mean, in in the earlier period, there were a few groups like in ancient Greece that uh, said this probably isn't right, but they never really gained traction, but they started to gain traction in the 18th century and the 19th, uh, early 19th century in the Anglo world. And it's eased by the fact that there is this other source of labor that's available. And that source are uh, what are called Indian coolies or uh, Chinese coolies, they're indentured laborers. So they're not chattel slaves or they're not, they're legally not chattel slaves, but they are very low on the freedom scale. So uh, the places in in the the British empire, for example, that have been relying on um, African slaves, Simply switch over to these indentured laborers, so they're still, uh, you know, able to continue more or less business as usual. But uh, you know, people convinced themselves that these folks weren't weren't slaves because they signed contracts, and uh, it turns out that um, you know they really didn't give their consent to any of this. They were lied to. They were illiterate, um, and you know, so the fact that they they made their mark on a piece of paper in a language that they don't even know uh, is hardly indication we know today of they're actually giving consent. Uh, also, we consider consent today not just sort of pre-consent, where we agree to a contract, but ongoing consent, right? Where today we think, well, if somebody doesn't like their employment situation, they should be able to to leave it. And we do make a few exceptions for like movie stars and um, professional athletes and so on and so forth. You know, We allow to lock themselves into contracts, but one of the conditions of free labor is that we don't allow that um, uh, uh, for, for the vast majority of the, of, of the workforce, right? They can leave when they want. Um, so they have to give a continuing consent but these uh, early indentured laborers, they were signing up for you know three, five, ten years at a time. Um, lied to about the conditions. When they get there, they don't like what's going on, but there's nothing they can do about it at that point because they're two thousand mile sea trip away from home. They don't know any of the local customs or anything. They stick out like sore thumbs if they try to escape. So um, it's something very close to, to chattel slavery, and that's what helped you know. End that formal slavery because these alternatives were uh, were available. So yeah, it's it's not a happy story of uh, you know ooh la la here comes Wilberforce and the next thing you know you know the British have outlawed slavery and blah blah blah. Um, it's a much um, much more complicated, nuanced uh, story than that. Though still progress, right? That that is Just not a big- know. and
0: maybe uh, an important thing to think about there is not just the change in the practice which may have been in practice many people going from a zero to a three but the change in how people thought about slavery because throughout most of history people for the most part did not question slavery's morality most people throughout history just sort of accepted that that's the way things were and then in the lead up to uh, you know the civil war many people would make arguments that not only was it not uh, bad? Some people tried to claim it was actually very good and there were uh, debates related to that. So can you talk about the change in how people thought about slavery?
1: Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. For most of uh, human history, recorded history, there's very little um, resistance to, to slavery. It's thought to be something natural. Uh, it's thought to be um, a good thing even for the enslaved because uh, they could, if, if they were seized in a, in a war, for example, which is one of the major ways that people over time have been become enslaved. Uh, well, you could have been killed right then and there. So you weren't killed right then and there. So that, so enslaving you was a good thing. Um, it, it, that, uh, you know, you did a bad thing, right? So, there, so there's always been this, this element of uh, how, how do you pay restitution to society uh, for, for breaking the law? well, we, you know, not many societies are just throwing people into um, cells where they do nothing and need to be fed and whatnot. Right? Most of the time it's okay, well, I, we could put corporal punishment on you, um, uh, e- even capital punishment and take your life, but we're not gonna do that. We're gonna allow you to live, but you're gonna have to uh, do what this person tells you to do for the rest of your, for the rest of your life. Uh, Or if you owe a big debt and you can't, uh, or any debt and you can't repay it, uh, you know we could uh, do very nasty things to you, but we're just going to enslave you instead. uh, Was was sort of the the mentality. But you know the Enlightenment comes along and we start thinking about liberty, and um, there are some people who start to interpret the Bible in a way that makes it um, seem like it's not. uh, You know, especially the New Testament doesn't jive with. Uh, with with enslaving others. And uh, I think that we finally start to come to to realize that uh, one person enslaving another actually hurts everyone economically. hurts them morally too, in some way, but you know that that's a, a bit slippier, you know more, more more slippery of a concept. but um, we, uh, come to realize that uh, slavery creates very large negative externalities or pollution, and, uh, and and it's because people do not want to be enslaved. And the um, there are some cases of people with like Stockholm syndrome, or sometimes supposedly the the victims of the the uh, the slaughterhouses as they're called in in. In English, these um, horrific rape brothels uh, in suburban um, Paris, where women uh, have to service men twelve hours a day, one right after the other, um, with a with a six minute rule in place. Um, you know, you do they do that for years? And, and they they're just um, you know they 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 it's very difficult to come back uh, from that. Um, But in most instances, uh, people who are enslaved still have uh, enough sense of of self that they don't want to be enslaved, and they resist, and they resist in in myriad ways uh, that reduce the enslavers' profits, but the enslavers um, often get subsidies from the government to to help them to continue to uh, extract rents from from these uh, unfortunate souls.
0: So that might be a good segue into um, the fifth chapter. I think over the course of our conversation, you've already covered much of the fourth chapter, which is about how slavery, in many senses, continued after the formal dissolution of it. But the fifth chapter, that which is seen in slavery's profits, this uh, is about uh, some of those arguments that people made at the time in support. Of slavery, they claimed it was economically necessary. Uh, before people started making that realization, that it wasn't. Can you tell me about the enslavers' profits?
1: Uh, I mean, there, there were some enslavers who were simply incompetent, and and they didn't profit. But um, you know, there, there's a distribution of profits. Uh, you know. You can think of it like a, like a normal distribution, right? Um, and as, as far as we can tell, the, uh, sort of the, the median profitability is above the median profitability for um, other endeavors at the same level of risk. So in other words, uh, what, what would the finance people call that an alpha? There's an alpha. There's a uh, there, there there's a um, above risk adjusted average return a rent an economic rent that uh, the median enslaver in, in is taking and of course some of them are wildly profitable out, out the tail and some of them are incompetent and and actually managed to lose money with slaves somehow. Um, but generally, uh, generally speak, and, and if you think about it, uh, and I guess this ties into a chapter I wrote in a in a book from 2010 called *Fubarnomics*. The chapter is called "Uncle Tom's Cabin," uh, where I have a model of why firms choose different labor labor um, sources, and why use slaves versus uh, using family labor versus using wage labor versus using indentured uh, indentured labor. So the, these folks are choosing to use slaves. They're doing it rationally. They must think that they're getting some advantage from, from doing that. And it appears as though they, they are. Uh, or, or they are today and they, and they did in the, the canonical you know, antebellum uh, South. The problem is um, that you can't go from profitability to being good for the economy.
0: Right. That and gets
1: into the next two chapters. Absolutely. Yeah, let's let's yeah. move there. So uh, yeah, slavery cr- creates all kinds of negative externalities or, or pollution. Right? There are um, costs that are borne by society uh, that are not embedded in the market transactions and the, and the price of, of slaves. Uh, and yeah, these are two very long chapters with tons and tons of detail from lots of different Uh, lots of different places and and time periods, but they all show that um, by resisting their enslavement, slaves um, create control costs and enslavers often manage to put those control costs on the rest of society um, because they control the the polity or because uh, nobody the case today that not enough people care enough to to stop them from, from doing it. So uh, there used to be slave patrols, for example, in the US where poor whites had to go out like a militia duty, had to go out at night and walk around and look for slaves that might be up to no good. There were public armories just uh, for the event of a slave insurrection. Uh, so that um, the militia could be called out uh, or the federal government could be called out. There, there was this massive slave uh, rebellion, for example, in Louisiana in 1811 that hardly anyone talks about for reasons that that, that aren't clear, but the, the federal government had to in, intercede in that. Uh, you have these fugitive slave laws where if slaves managed to escape and they escaped into a, a um a free state, a state that uh, no longer countenanced uh, chattel slavery. Uh, it was the duty of the citizens of that state to apprehend the runaway and return them to the, to the slave owner. Um, there's this whole legal code that has to, to come with all its uh, attendant, um, you know, costs and, and inefficiencies. There's the fact that um, slaveholders weren't, landlords so much truly really as they were labor lords. So they would uh, deplete the fertility of their lands and simply buy more land out west and bring their slaves along with them. Well, that meant that they didn't have many really long-term ties to particular communities. So they didn't invest in uh, the the churches and the the banks and the railroads and all, all, like they did in the north, because they didn't have an incentive to do that, because they're expecting in twenty years that they're going to be moving to, uh, you know, to to fresh, to fresh lands. Um, the, uh, the literacy rates in the south were abysmal, and compared, uh, especially compared to the, to the north, um, because the slaveholders didn't want. There to be non-slaveholders who were uh, intelligent and who thought for themselves, because they might start to question this, the system that the the slaveholders were creating, uh, you know, in order to um, make slavery as profitable as 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 possible for the for themselves. Uh, so there's lots and lots of these uh, sorts of instances. Uh, not just slave rebellions, there are um, maroon societies as they're called that would crop up where uh, if slaves didn't have a place to go where they could be free, they would go to wild places and create their own communities and then raid the, 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 the slave uh, communities. Um, this is huge throughout history and even in the even in the United States in the early the early 19th century and so the public resources are put towards that. There are public whipping stations. If you're, um, you know, a dainty Southern belle, uh, and your husband's off on business, and you have house slaves who are getting uppity, uh, you can't very well get get out the cat of nine tails yourself and, and whip them, right? But there was a public whipping station where you could take your slaves and say, please whip the slave on my behalf. Uh, and And they'd be, they'd be whipped. So there's Lots and lots of, of costs that are being put out on the entire society in order to keep slaves manageable, and that allows slavery to be profitable and uh, extra profitable in in some, in some times and sometimes in places. Right. So while it's, overall hurting the while hurting the overall economy. Yeah.
0: Right. So it's not just a form of moral progress, but also. Uh, kind of economic progress and uh, that brings us to the eighth chapter on real abolition you talk about the various forms of forced labor and uh, levels of slavery that still persist I'm curious about uh, whether there's been any progress uh, to note since this book's release in in 2017 on that and uh Mm -hmm if you can just talk a little bit about some of these issues today with slavery and the threat of a return to slavery through paternalism.
1: Uh, yeah, so um, I, I guess big, big picture, the good news is that right now, we're probably at a point in history where this, the smallest percentage of the human population is enslaved, right? Um, there are 8 billion people now we know, uh, more or less, Uh, And, you know, because it's illegal, we don't have super firm numbers, but roughly 50 million people are enslaved. So that's a very tiny percentage of the the global population. That's great news. The 50 million, though, might be the highest number of individuals who have ever been enslaved in history, simply because population levels were much, much lower in the past. So... um, it, that, that's not such good news and just 50 million, regardless of its percentage is a lot of individual people to be under these, these circumstances. Uh, about half of them are sex slaves, about a quarter of them are domestic slaves. So they're being worked in people's um, homes and about a quarter are uh, being worked in agricultural and <coughs> generally like agri uh, what's the term for it? Agribusiness, uh, uh, agri-industrial, like making turpentine, uh, for example. Um, so they're uh, out in secluded areas, um, and they are creating a, a you know, a, a product, a manufactured product. Um, but they're they're not making spaceships or things like that. Uh, it's it's not a good idea to to try to enslave people to to do fancy technological stuff as Hitler discovered in the Second, the second World War. <clears throat> so um, we're in, in a position where you know, there are lots of people to help, but it's not like um, you know, the, the negative externalities being um, created by slavery today are, are as immense as they were in the antebellum United States. Uh, but they're, they're still, uh, you know, not, not insignificant, especially given that many of these slaves are also used to degrade the en- environment. Many of the people, you know, burning down the uh, rainforests in Brazil are enslaved. Uh, many of the people destroying um, mangrove forests in South uh, Asia are enslaved because, you um, in, enslaving others uh, works well with other criminal activity, right? it's already a crime to enslave others. Why not throw, you know, destruction of natural resources in on top of that? Why not throw drugs and, um, and arms, you know, gun, gun smuggling in on top of that? <laughs> so we've seen the development of, um, you know, organized crime syndicates throughout the world that in, engage in what's sometimes called the, the big three, um, guns, girls, and um, uh, drugs. So, you know, it's a, it's a constant struggle. Uh, the pandemic did not help. Um, it looks like uh, that there were some people who were enslaved when the lockdowns occurred, were uh, killed or allowed to die because they couldn't generate the the economic value and they weren't worth keeping around, Um, especially when people started to realize that it was gonna be more than two weeks to flatten the curve sort of of thing. You just don't wanna release your slaves because then they're witnesses potentially uh, against you. Um, And uh, also many people became increasingly um, uh, fragile, during the course of the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and the mandates and and so forth, uh, they lost income and they become more vulnerable to uh, to enslavement. And so, uh, yeah, it doesn't look like the the last few years have been have been very good. But, uh, you know, I think technology might be able to help. Uh, technology in the past has certainly helped to to get over that. That long transition from chattel slaves to debt peons and indentured servants and whatnot, more towards um, uh, wage labor and, and free labor. For example, uh, machines pick cotton now. We don't have human beings bending over fields in Oklahoma and and uh, the area outside of Lubbock, Texas. You know, picking picking cotton. Machines do it. Uh, so um, machines could also help. Uh, and certain, um, you know, aspects of, uh, of of modern modern slavery, slavery and sex trafficking. Again, about half of which is is, you know, the sex the sex industry. So, um, what about the uh,
0: threat? I've I've heard you talk about the threat of a return to slavery, because again, it's very unusual historically for there to be widespread agreement that that slavery. Is bad, and thank goodness we all now, uh, you know, outside of a couple of groups like the Islamic State, pretty much agree that it's bad. Uh, what would be the threat of a uh, reversal on that of a, a change back towards slavery?
1: Uh, any major um, economic disruption could easily bring it back, and uh, you know I doubt that uh, the word slave would be used at least at first. Um, just like in the past, they'd come up with, with some, some euphemism for it. And we know now, you know, how, how plastic or pliable words have become, right? Uh, uh, who, who knows what, um, what label could be given to them. But, uh, if you, if you watch any sort of, uh, sci-fi dystopian apocalyptic, uh, story like these zombie thing, there's always slavery that's being, that's being redone, um, in in one form or, or another. It's, um, you know, unless you have a government that supports uh, life, liberty, and and property, and can protect that, then people go back to the old um, trade or raid thought all the time, right? Because right right now, most of us still just default to trade. We want to work together find our mutually beneficial uh, interests and, and exchange. But we could very easily slip back into a situation where if you see another person, you're not thinking, Oh, what can I exchange with them for for mutually beneficial gain? It might be simply how do I bonk this person on the head and uh, take control of either their stuff or maybe the person themselves.
0: And you've talked about also thinking again of, slavery is kind of a continuum. you talked about the rise of paternalistic thinking and how that relates to this issue. Yeah,
1: there was some interesting uh, experimental research being done um, by uh, some students of Elvin um, Roth before the pandemic that showed at least in Germany that paternalism is uh, rife in people's thinking. And they did it by Uh, presumably having an experiment about eating bugs uh, and they'd have, you know, people would say, well, yeah, what would your reservation price be to eat that disgusting thing right there? And people would give their answers and whatnot. But what they really wanted to test was if people were willing to say that other people can't eat the bug. And they found you know, like 90% of people were willing to do that, wanted to do that, wanted to say, I don't think that anyone should be allowed to eat this bug for less than $500 or 500 euro, I guess, because it's, it's, it's Germany. They repeated the experiment with um, uh, interest rates, um, basically saying, okay, you can get five euro tomorrow for partaking in this experiment, or you can get 50 euro in a year, which do you prefer? And of course, you know, most educated people are going to say, well, give me 50, at least back you know, when interest rates were low, yeah, give me, give me 50 in a year. But um, the real experiment was, do you want to make other people do the same choice that you've made? And again, like 90% of the people in these studies in Germany were saying, yes, I don't think anyone should be allowed to take the five Euro tomorrow, because obviously, you, know, you should take the 50 Euro in a year. Uh, and so uh, what I was, what I was hoping was to see more of these sorts of, so we can't do them historically, obviously, but to see more of these sorts of scientific uh, econo- uh, economic experiments being done in different cultures uh, to see if this is a German thing, or if this is a human thing, or the extent to which it is dependent upon uh, educational systems, or, or if it's something in, inherent in, in humanity we want to think that we know what's better for, for, for other people, which of course was a main justification for, for slavery and could become again, right? Um, you're not capable of making decisions yourself. So I will make those decisions for you, and you're going to be better off for it. Which of course is a lot of what government does as well.
0: <laughs> well. I think there's still obviously a long way to go, but I think there's little doubt that the abolition of legal slavery has constituted one of humanity's greatest moral achievements. It's definitely worth talking about for the Human Progress podcast and, um, you know, the ongoing struggle against slavery is one of the greatest moral imperatives. You're doing important work there, and your research has also shown that Uh, this dramatic global change in norms around slavery is not just a moral victory, but is also crucial to human prosperity. So thank you again for speaking with me on this podcast. And I hope everyone listening will check out your book. Again, it's The Poverty of Slavery, How Unfree Labor Pollutes the Economy, and your other work on this topic.